Welcome to the Overcoming Adversity Podcast, where it's all about a transformational growth and having a resilient mindset. I'm your host, Michael Allison. Thank you so much for joining us today. Before we get started, make sure you like and subscribe to the channel. Today we have on the show a really good friend of mine, Miss Ann Montgomery. She's an author, a retired sports official, and a teacher. She's worked on five different stations to include ESPN, Anchoring Sports Center. Big deal for me, y'all. Big deal. She's also a woman that has faced her own fair shares of adversities when it comes to the industry as well. And she's here to tell us about it. So let's welcome to the show my really good friend, Miss Ann Montgomery. Thank you for inviting me, Michael. I'm happy to be here. And welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining me, man. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on here. Well, great. I'm happy to be here. Hey, I'm pumped up about this. As I said before, I, I uh, truly respect your craft, respect all of the things that you've done. And to know that, to me personally, um, you, you come from a, uh, an elk of something that I, I cherish so, so, so much. I love sports. I really love sports. Well, I'm so, with you. I love them too. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm looking forward to this interview and, and I would love to just like hop into it if you can and tell me how did you get into sports? Why did you get into sports? Um, was um, it, it goes back a very long way. Let's like, do it. Like a lot of young people, um, I was fortunate enough to be able to participate in sports, but I grew up before Title IX. So it wasn't school sports. I was an ice skater. Um, I, grew, I started ice skating at five. And I, like all young athletes, had visions of grandeur that someday I would be standing on that Olympic podium with my gold medal. The problem was I was not a very good skater. I was too big. I was too heavy. And, you know, ice skaters are little teeny tiny people and I'm not that. So I, I was a mediocre skater at best. I was an ice dancer, which meant I skated with a partner. And trust me, you wouldn't want to lift me up over your head on the ice. <laughs> so um, I skated and I loved that. But I also grew up, on, grew up in an arena and I fell in love with ice hockey. Now today, I'd be a hockey player because girls play hockey today. But That's back right. then they did not. No one invited me to put on a helmet and pads back then. So I loved that, and, and my dad took me skiing when I was eight, so I skied, but I was not a great athlete of any kind. I probably should have been a swimmer. That's what I was best at, but I was too embarrassed to be seen in a bathing suit back then because I was a stupid girl. Um, but anyway, when I was in high school, they had something called the broadcast crew, and the broadcast crew was an in-house radio station where we did the announcements every morning. Because I was the statistician on the hockey team, one day one of the players handed me an announcement. He said, would you guys do this announcement this morning? I said, sure. So I went into the broadcast booth where I worked with six other guys. And I, I, took, I decided, well, if I was going to read this hockey story, I should read all the sports stories. So I took them all out and I'm getting ready to do the show. And the guys go, what are you doing? And, and I said, well, I'm going to read these stories. I said, you can't read sports stories. You're a girl. Girls aren't sports reporters. Mm. And with that, the teacher walked in, who, who was the sponsor of that class. He happened to be the drama teacher at school, and I was in a lot of theater. And he goes, what's the matter? we got to get a show on. You guys are going to be late. And they said, Annie wants to read the sports, and she can't because she's a girl. <laughs> and he went, let her read the sports stories, and he walked out. So the guys got mad. And oh. the next day I came in, and they had found uh, theme music for me, and they gave me a nickname. They called me Big Ann. And, the, and the, my theme music was Mission Impossible, <laughs> right? And so they announced me as Big Ann, and they played that theme song. And they, they did it to insult me, I think, but I um, loved it. 
And from after that, all the coaches and the players would bring me, me the, the sports stories. So when I'm 17, I'm, it's my senior year in high school, my mother marches over to me and said, so we have to pick a college. Um, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I said, I want to be a sportscaster. <laughs> it was 1972. There mm -hmm. weren't women sportscasters. And my mother looks at me and she goes, I'm trying to have a serious conversation with you. Don't be ridiculous. And she <laughs> toddled away on her spike heels. Um, but I, I did. That's what I wanted. And I went to college. I went to Miami University in Oxford, Ohio, cradle of coaches, Era Parsegan, Woody Hayes, Bo Beckler, right? And um, I got there and I told my professors I wanted to be a sportscaster and I majored in communications. They said, don't be ridiculous. There aren't women sportscasters. That's never going to happen. Find something else. And I said, no. So my senior year in college, they put together a sports show. Um, it was all about Miami University sports. And they told me I could be one of the two anchors, which was shocking at the mm -hmm. time. I was so excited. So I wanted to go interview the football coach and the basketball coach and the baseball coach. And all three of them refused to talk to me. Mm. They said, absolutely not. We're not talking to her. So the other, the male anchor on the show, he got to interview them. And I'm like, well, what do I do now? Then I realized there were a lot of other sports on campus, you know, soccer and gymnastics and swimming and, right. and ho hockey. No one played much attention to hockey then. And, and when I, when I approached those teams, they were thrilled that anybody cared because mm -hmm. you know how those kids don't get much attention. True, so true. I worked with them my senior year. Now this was a taped show. It had never been live on TV. And, um, you know, I got out of college with a degree in communications. And do you know, Michael, what that will get you? What What did it get you? Um, I, I, I don't, I don't think nothing, but you tell me. Nothing. I, I, I moved to Washington, D.C. and um, lived with my aunt. I love D.C., by the way. It was a great place to live. But I couldn't even get it. Get it. I couldn't even get an application. They would just say, go away. No, we're not interested. And and a funny thing happened. You know how little things in your life change everything. One night, my aunt and I went to a hockey game and she had a date with her, a guy I didn't know. Mm -hmm. And we're watching the Washington Capitals play and they were horrible. They're just terrible. And the game was a bore. So we're drinking beer and the guy goes, oh, I'm an amateur hockey referee. Mm -hmm. And and he goes, and we don't have enough referees. And my aunt goes, oh, Annie can skate. I, went, yeah, I grew up skating. And he goes, you want to be a referee? And I went, yeah, sure. Why not? Right. Because I was a waitress in a bar in mm. Georgetown, which was great fun, but which had my parents, uh, my parents came down and had an intervention with me saying, you know, we put you through college to be a waitress. This is horrible. And I said, no, mom, I have a plan. And the plan was I went and became a hockey referee for little tiny kids, like five-year-olds, you know, with their jerseys at their ankles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And their little helmets are crooked because their heads aren't big enough. And I went and I did my very first game at six o'clock in the morning after a shift at the restaurant that put me to bed about three. And it never occurred to me that hockey skates are different from figure skates. Do you know how they're different? No. How are they? Ah, figure skates have toe picks on the end, real sharp <laughs> toe picks. And lazy skaters like me, when I fell, I'd use my toe picks and hop up from the ice. They're used for landing jumps. Mm -hmm. okay? um, hockey skates don't have toe picks. They're just rounded at both ends. Never occurred to me. I'd spit on the ice my whole life, but I'd never been in hockey skates. Mm -hmm. So I went out that first morning, went to take my first face off, five-year-old kids, and I fell. And <laughs> I couldn't get up. 
because <laughs> I kept digging my toe. I just out of habit, digging my toe in the ice, I kept falling down. And I'm lying on the ice looking up at five-year-olds. And I don't remember the rest of the game at all. <laughs> but I do remember driving home and I had an epiphany. I said, wait a minute. Who are the people that know the rules? Only the officials. Only Coaches officials. and players don't read rule books. Maybe 2% do. Most never look at a rule book at any level. And so I figured if I could become a certified amateur official in the five main team spectator sports, football, baseball, ice hockey, soccer, and basketball. And if I could do that for five years, I would learn all about the games I'd never been able to play. Mm -hmm. And that maybe some forward thinking news director somewhere would give me a job. And mm. that's exactly what happened. Oh, wow. But I went, again, I, I mentioned it briefly, but I went through a lot of family turmoil because my parents were ashamed of me. You know, they said, what are we supposed to tell your, our friends you're doing? I'm like, tell them I'm a referee, mom, and I'm, I'm going to be a sportscaster. I, it's like I'm in school again, learning the sports. And she said, that's ridiculous. And they tried to force me to go back to school to be a teacher. And I'm like, no, no, I don't want to do that. So they didn't even talk to me for a few years because they were embarrassed that I was nothing but a waitress. I was actually going to ask you that, you know, growing up in those times, you know, as I've had conversations with um, other people and they would tell me that, you know, women were supposed to be like housewives. They were supposed to have like not be in sports, these types of things and stuff like that. And obviously you went against the norm when it came to those types of things. And it's very interesting because my family was not at the least bit like that. My mother was a reporter in the 1940s. Oh, wow. Okay. Radio and print. She had a college degree. She was the only mother who worked in our neighborhood. Okay. Um, so that was never the case. My, if I had said I wanted to be Jane Pauley and been a newscaster, my mother would have thought that was probably great. Okay. But it was the sports she didn't get. My mother's attitude was sports are for your physical well-being. Yes, you know, go ahead and participate, mm -hmm. but it's not a job. And and in her defense, there simply weren't any women doing that then. Even mm -hmm. though when she was a reporter, there weren't women reporters very much. She was a freak in her time. So it wasn't that, it was the sports angle and the fact that she was horrified that I was working in this bar, restaurant, very Tony, fancy restaurant where all kinds of athletes hung out and famous people came in and it was the eighties, okay? It was a lot of fun. And I have to admit, I was enjoying that quite a bit, even though I wanted to be a sportscaster still, but there were no, I had no way to get into the business. Uh -huh. And so I had that epiphany. And so I did, I spent five years officiating five sports, I will admit I was horrible at basketball and I was horrible at soccer. I just, I did them relatively briefly compared to my other sports. I mean, I did football for 40 years. I did baseball for about 25. And the only reason I don't do them today is that I've had so many injuries. I mean, if I was ever abducted and dismembered, they could identify me from any piece they found because they've all been x-rayed <laughs> because of sports. Again, remember when they told us sports were good for us? They yeah, lied. yeah, yeah. They lied. <laughs> Rotator cuff surgery twice. I broke my back. I broke my, I mean, I broke my arm twice. Um, I brought, yeah, I, it's ridiculous. I would still do it again, but I'm paying for it at 68. I mean, every time I go to the doctor, they go, well, you're old. I'm like, thank you. <laughs> you're an old athlete. I'm like, great, thanks, you know. What what kept you to be so persistent? Like so many doors closed in your face and you just said, 
I'm just going to continue marching on, marching on. Another door will open. What kept you so, so it like might, in? It might have been ignorance at the time because mm -hmm. I really didn't understand how absurd my desire was. Mm -hmm. You know, if it had been 10 years later, there might have been a few women already doing it. But back then, uh, I don't think Phyllis George, and she was Miss American, and I, I'm not putting her down, but, you know, she was eye candy on the set, which right. unfortunately is still goes on. Um, it might have been ignorance, but I'm also extremely stubborn. I'm Irish, and uh, we are stubborn by nature. And everybody, you know, also, when I was a kid, I was obese. And back then, there weren't a lot of heavy kids, and I got bullied quite a bit. And I, I just had to keep putting one foot in front of the other. I mean, I couldn't just sit and cry because I was, didn't have friends because I was fat. So it probably started way back then. I just, people would tell me no, and I would just be quiet and go my own way and somehow figure it out. Um, I, I don't know. I guess it's a combination of the two. I'm just basically stubborn. Well, I wanted to ask you this. How, how do you look at yourself back then when, like you said, there are not too many people doing it. Do you consider yourself a pioneer in regards to leading that path to have that longevity of over 40 years, right? When you didn't see that many representation of yourself, do you consider yourself a pioneer? Well, first off in television, um, women started to appear maybe like, I, I got my first job in TV. It took me 10 years, by the way. I was 28 before I got my first job in TV. And right. that was in Columbus, Georgia. Fort Benning. We. Um, <laughs> it was quite a shock moving from Washington D.C. to to. to That's Florida. the country right there. Oh my goodness! It was <laughs> shocking for me. I grew up in New Jersey outside of New York City, and I moved to Washington D.C. And I went, yeah, you know, center of the universe, both towns. And then I went to Georgia and went, holy crap, where am I now? Um, but it. I was 28 at the time. So, you know, I had it, I had worked all those years as an official. Now, 40 years later, I, I, I did officiate for 40 years. And, and that's shocking to me because I, I took up officiating as a means to an end to prove to people I understood the games. Mm -hmm. um, for, but I couldn't quit. I, in fact, today, that's what I miss the most. I miss Friday night football. I really do. And if I could physically still do it, I would. And now I forgot your question and don't know if I answered it. Did I? Not a problem. <laughs> I, I, I will ask you this. How how does it feel to break into the industry at age 28, despite all of the difficulties? Like, how did you how did you manage to even do that? It was very difficult, primarily because all those years I officiated and worked in the bar, I never watched TV. So while I could tell you all about what an interference call is, sort of maybe because those are confusing. Um, I had no idea how to do TV, certainly not live TV. In college, we recorded things. So here I was, they hired me in Columbus, Georgia, and they said, come on down and be here by in two weeks. Got there on a Sunday night, met my boss. He said, oh, good, you're gonna anchor on, on, on Wednesday, two days, 48 hours. I'd never been on, on live TV in my life. And I didn't know how to do it. And I was very fortunate at that station and the next one I worked at, there were men that should have been promoted ahead of me that were already working at the stations in the, in the sports departments who were wonderful to me. And later I met some jerks, but these guys tried to help me. So I'm, I'm in Columbus, Georgia. My partner, Jim, is, uh, um, I can't think of his name, sadly. Um, but anyway, he really helped me. But there was one place we screwed up. You're probably too young to remember what carbon paper is, aren't you? 
I know carbon paper. Okay, good. We had carbon paper, six copies, and we typed in old-fashioned typewriters, no computers, and <laughs> somebody you had to separate those into scripts. And one set of scripts went to the producer, one to the director, one to the teleprompter operator, and the anchors kept scripts. I didn't know that either. So on my very first night, I, I was typing my scripts and, and I, I noticed a line down the middle of those scripts. I didn't know what the line meant. Didn't occur to me to ask anyone. Well, it turns out that you're supposed to put the directions for the director on the left side. It says, Anne's on camera. Here's Anne. Bring up the highlights from the Braves game. Here are the highlights. Bring in the score. I'm supposed to tell the director what I want him to do. I didn't do that. I typed my scripts from one end of that copy to that page to the other. So when they introduced me, first woman sportscaster in Columbus, Georgia, I turned to the teleprompter. My sentences were all cut in half. Mm. I did not have one readable sentence. And then I noticed I also didn't have any scripts in my hands because no one told me I should have scripts in my hand in case the teleprompter broke. I do not remember those three and a half minutes. It was like I was in a terrible accident. And I, I, I have no memory of what I said or did. Pardon me just for a second. I don't know why you weren't away. There you go. Um, and the worst part was my mother's best friend was in Atlanta at the time and was scrolling through the TV stations and saw me. And she called my mother and said, oh my God, I just saw Anna Nera. She's awful. <laughs> And I was, I was absolutely, I don't know if I did, I don't know if I made things up. I don't know what I said for those three and a half minutes. And frankly, I'm stunned they didn't fire me right then. <laughs> I'm surprised you didn't ad lib through it. <laughs> I, but you don't, it's about what? I didn't, I was so panicked. I don't even remember anything. And uh, I'm, I'm sure I could have looked at it, but I didn't. And, and from that point on, I learned uh, because at a small TV station, our small market station, you do all the work. And I was fortunate that that my partner did help me extensively. And and so I learned and I always encourage students. I taught at AS, Arizona State University last year and I encouraged them. I said, please go to a little tiny town where you don't know anyone for a thousand miles because you're going to make mistakes live on TV. This is live television and sports and news are last bastions of live TV. We don't have live TV very much. What you do is out there for eternity. True. So there's a lot of pressure. That's why I used to, I used to laugh when I'd sit next to guys at bars and they go, oh man, you have a great job. I want to be a sportscaster just like you. That'd be great. I said, you have no idea. <laughs> you got, you got an earpiece in someone screaming at you to cut 45 seconds out of your program while you're doing a highlight, trying to look pleasant on the air. And, and it's, I'm going to die a few years early from the stress incurred from TV. <laughs> there's no <laughs> doubt in my mind, but after 10 years, I was done. Uh, because how, how did how did you land to be on Sports Center? Ah, okay. So I went from Columbus, Georgia, to Rochester, New York. Uh, mm -hmm. A TV is like minor league baseball. You start in A ball, you go to Double A, Triple A, and hopefully someday you make the majors, right? Right. So I went from Columbus, Georgia, which was the 116th market, to Rochester, New York, which was the 69th market. Good jump there for me. And then after two and a half th years there, I got hired by in Phoenix. Uh, which was a top 20 market at the time. That's good. You know, I'm progressing. Mm -hmm. And I worked here for two years. Uh, and I, this was one of the best stations I ever worked for because they they didn't treat me like I was a girl. The first two stations hired me for the shock factor. They were the lowest rated stations in town. And they hired me because they go, oh, my God, I want a sportscaster. We got to watch that. Right. Because mm -hmm. it was a freaky thing. Out right. here in Arizona, um, I got here just as the Cardinals arrived. 
and um, I was picked to be their the beat reporter, which was unheard of. I could, that was a plum gig where I worked, traveled with the team, and went to all the games, went to all the practices. And um, there were other men who'd been here that probably deserved that slot, but my boss trusted me and gave it to me. So I had a great time working here, but then uh, I got a call from my agent who said, ESPN called. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, they, one of their guys saw you on TV and they want to hire you. I said, you're kidding. He said, no. And so, you know, they sent me a contract. I was married at the time and I was, I said, sure. And I signed the contract without telling my husband. I don't know why. I just didn't occur. Well, I'm going to turn down ESPN. You know, he'd been a minor league umpire. And I, I said, if, if may, the major leagues picked you, you would have signed. You would ask me first. Right, right. Oh, yeah. That was a bad thing. So anyway, yeah, they just saw me on TV. And when I went there uh, and I, I met my boss here out here in Phoenix, I said, I got to ask you, why'd you hire me? And he looked at me and he said, because you can write. I almost fell out of my bar stool because no one had ever said that to me. I'm dyslexic. And I didn't know that till I was in my fifties. I, mm -hmm. I just said I was stupid and lazy a lot. Um, and I had to learn really hard about how to study and so I could get through school. So he told me I was a good writer. And then I realized, you know, I'd been writing stories day in and day out for years on TV because that's what we do. We tell stories. So they hired me for that. Unfortunately, ESPN was no fun. It was not a good place to work. And now you're going to ask me why, right? Why? I knew you'd say that. Um, they were hiring women because they felt they had to, to look politically correct. Mm. Um, all the women had been there before me were there for very short periods of time and disappeared. And, and I didn't think about that when I first got there, but I knew why later. Um, here I'd, I'd been worked for three stations. I, I honestly, I read the newspaper every day. I read Sports Illustrated word for word every week. I did my best to understand sports and I certainly understood the games from officiating, which I was still doing. And I got there and they didn't seem to think I knew anything. And I'll give you a perfect example. Are you a baseball fan? Yes, I am. Okay, good. You might know this then. I'm live on the air. And if you're lucky before sports center, you get to see all the highlights. Yeah. Cause you write them and you, you, you know, production assistants hand you the shots, you look at them, you make them so they fit the way you speak. Yeah. And you've seen them prior to the show, but sometimes um, games end while you're on the air. So that means a production assistant will come sliding in during a commercial break, throw some highlights in front of you and you have to read them And the camera light goes on and you're on camera. And I had my intro was let's go to Wrigley field where first shot was a fan getting hit with a foul tip in the front row. I knew that was wrong. I knew immediately it was wrong, but I had to move on to the next highlight. Mm -hmm. So at the end of sports center, there's something called a postmortem where everybody involved in the show goes to a big conference room. We sit around a big table and we talk about what went well, what went poorly and what do we need to improve upon? All right. So I'm waiting. And finally I said, okay. And, and the production assistant, Bob was sitting across from me and I went, Bob, let me explain. It is totally impossible for someone in the front row of a baseball game to be hit with a foul tip. I think you meant foul ball. Because a foul ball is a ball that goes out of play. It's a dead ball. A foul tip is a ball that goes from the bat to the catcher's glove. It is a strike. The umpire will signal, you know, like that. It is a live ball. So if somebody's stealing home, I have to let the play go. It's a live play then. But two very different things. There's silence at the table. And then that kid stood up and he looked at me and said, you're nothing but a picky bitch. Wow. And I said, no, I'm an umpire. And, and there's a huge difference between a foul ball and a foul tip. 
there just is. He stomped out of the room. No one defended me. No one said a word about it till the next morning when I was called into my boss's office and he ordered me to apologize. What? To the production assistant because I hurt his feelings. I didn't what? raise his voice. I explained it just the way I explained it to you. I had to say, I'm sorry, Bob, that I hurt your feelings. But wouldn't you think ESPN would want to get it right? They you didn't. Think. And and that kind of thing happened a lot. Um, we This was before the internet was where you could find out anything in a second. And we had a guy there named Howie. And Howie was the sports guru. You could say, Howie, when was the last time in December the Jets won by three points? And he'd go, well, that would be 1976 that occurred. And that was against whoever. He knew everything. So you could wave him over when you were running out of time and going, hey, Howie, I need this information now. And he'd give it to you. So one night I had to do that. I called him over and I said, I don't remember what the piece of information was. He gave it to me. I went on the air. I get called into my boss's office and he's yelling at me. Why did you say that on the air? Well, I asked Howie. He gave me the information. I turn around. Howie's leaning in the doorway. He goes, I never told her anything. Oh, wow. Yeah. That kind of stuff. Passive aggressive stuff. Wow. And it, the best one was uh, 19, I want to say 91, maybe. I think the umpires were going on strike. Mm -hmm. And here comes opening day. And opening days in Montreal or Toronto. Roger Clemens, Dave Steve were pitching. And there's this upcoming possible, we're going to have to have replacement umps on opening day. Mm -hmm. Well, I knew there was a strike because my husband was an umpire. My husband was a AAA umpire, had been a AAA umpire. And he's now a chef because when, when he married me, they fired him because they said, we don't like our people involved with the media. He was fired four days later after wow. a year umpiring career. So anyway, he got a call and they said, we'd like you to work home plate opening day in Toronto. And I went, can I use the story? And he called his supervisor and they go, yeah, and he can have the story. I call ESPN. I go, you got to get somebody to New York because there's an umpire strike and it's going to happen. I watch the news. CNN has it, but not ESPN. I called the, I called the producer. I said, what are you doing? I told you there's going to be a strike. And they said, well, last night, Peter Gammons made a mistake on the air and we can't afford two mistakes in 24 hours. I said, why don't you believe I know what I'm talking about? I'm sorry. We're not doing this story. Mm. On Monday, when my husband is has just finished calling the game, he walks off and uh, um, what's his name? Uh, one of the, one of the main anchors at ESPN goes up and interviews him. He goes, "Hey, guy, hey, buddy, you did a great job behind the plate. That's wonderful. Where do you live?" And he said, "Bristol, Connecticut." He goes, "Really?" He said, "Yes, I'm married to Annie." And and so the bottom line is, they didn't even trust me. No, there was an umpire strike when I was married to a former umpire. So that kind of stuff happened constantly and it got really old. <laughs> it just did. Um, wow. It's, it's brutal to hear that story, to hear all of the growing pains that you had to go through that even like poured over into like your husband too. Like he, he felt the effects of it too. Honestly, it, it was really bad before we got married. Um, he, his supervisor came to him and said, don't marry her. The American League's looking at you and that would be a bad move. And I said, let's put off the wedding. And he said, don't be ridiculous. They're not going to fire me. Four days after we were married, he got a letter in the mail and almost no other umpire ever spoke to him again. Wow. 
and and it broke his heart. One of the reasons we got divorced, it broke his heart. And um, I was going to ask you how how was your relationship um, with your husband, knowing that you guys were in the sports industry, but you guys. You know, sports industry is a moving, you know, it's a moving target, yeah. you know what I mean? <laughs> so. Well, it's funny because part of the, I'd been engaged before and, you know, always left because I, I, as I told my students, when you're in, in media, you've got to be willing to move every couple of years. You can't develop close relations. I mean, I have friends all over the country that I haven't seen in years because I kept having to leave. Mm -hmm. And and when Higgs and I got together, and that's a very funny story because I went to umpire school in 1981 which is where most professional umpires come out of. And I was the only woman in a class of 105 men. Mm -hmm. And it was one of the weirdest experiences I've ever gone through. Um, John, you remember John McSherry? No, I'm not familiar. John McSherry was a massively huge man, like 380 pounds, um, who was a, a major league umpire. And he was one of our main instructor. And when he showed up, he, he was terrifying. He really was because he stomped around like a bull that had just been castrated, you know. And on top of that, he just had uh, root con control, uh, root canal surgery. He was a mess. So he terrified. He terrified ten men into quitting. <laughs> he just walked off. And the idea at umpire school is that everybody gets e tortured equally because if you can't handle abuse at umpire school, you're certainly not going to handle it on the field. All right. So they abuse you. And a perfect example was one day McSherry looked at me he, and my, 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 my legal name is Butler. He goes, Butler, you bring the balls up to field two after lunch. I said, yes, sir, I will do that. Cause he gave little tasks to people, right? So 20 minutes before we're going up the field to field two, I walked to the, to the storage shed and there's John Higgins, a young umpire who at that point was, I think he was in AAA at that point. And he's, he's leaning up against the shed and he goes, what do you need? I said, I need the balls for field two. And he said, oh, they're already up there. I said, no, 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 no. McSherry told me to bring the balls up. He said, nope, they're up there. I know they are. I just saw them. I said, okay. I ran up and I'm waiting because you're never late. I was one of the first people there. All the other guys are running up the hill and McSherry goes, okay, we're going to be working at first base. You know, I want you to, to look for the, for the foot on the bag and listen for the pop and the glove. Then he looks around and he goes, wait a minute, where's the balls? And he looks at me, he goes, Butler, don't you have the, any balls? And I went, well, Higgins told me they're here. And he goes, it's your job to get the balls. You go get them. And while you're gone, all your little friends here are going to run laps. Run laps now, gentlemen. <laughs> and they're swearing at me as I'm running down that field. I never ran so fast in my life. And, and the irony to all of this is that seven years later, I'm on TV in Rochester, New York, and I get a phone call in the studio, and it's John Higgins. Mm. And I ended up marrying him. <laughs> <laughs> and, and From that phone call? No, well, I met him at a bar, and he goes, and my name is Montgomery on TV because they made me change my name. And he goes, hey, bring your husband down. I said, uh, I'm not married. He said, then hurry up and get here. <laughs> and I, you know, he ended up coming out to Phoenix with me where he'd been an umpire. He loved it out here. Um, I will say he was an alcoholic, like, you know, a lot of people in the sports industry. Mm -hmm. So uh, once he lost his job, uh, it got very bad. That's it got good. really bad. He went to chef school. Um, he, he, he was a fabulous chef even before he was an umpire. He loved food and worked in various restaurants. But when I signed to go to Connecticut, he was furious. 
Mm-hmm. We didn't want to live in the cold. And I said, how can I turn down ESPN? I can't. And it was miserable. It was miserable oh. for both of us. And he drank extensively. And and uh, eventually I we got divorced. And, and he's deceased now. He died of COVID. Mm-hmm. And um, we stayed friends. We always e- emailed. If he showed up at my door, my partner and I would make a dinner. You know, there was no animosity. I understand why things went the way they did. All right. Um, but yeah, it was my career pretty much that ruined his. Wow. So as you see the industry now today with women flourishing all over football, baseball, basketball, really? what, what, what are your thoughts now based off looking at the industry now? Okay. Um, there are some sports that are doing a very good job, like basketball. Why? Women play basketball. Mm-hmm. It's, it's normal. Women have been playing basketball for for you know, year for, since the begin almost the beginning of basketball, so that's not considered strange. A woman doing soccer isn't strange. However, as one of as my commit my my sports officiating commissioner pointed out to me one day, he said, you know, it's really too bad you officiate men's sports. If you officiated women's sports, you might actually get somewhere. Mm. So the problem with broadcasting is that the the male dominated sports like football and baseball are way behind the curve. Now, I realize football is doing its best to look good to women. And there's a there's a really important reason for that. It's all about money. Okay, they have determined that the vast majority of all NFL paraphernalia is purchased by women. Mm. They're buying it for their husbands, their sons, their, you know, whoever. So that's when they started to make nice to women. If you, I don't know if you're old enough to remember when, when you'd watch a football game and we'd see 27 shots of, of shaking cheerleaders. Yes. You don't see that so much anymore, do you? No. No. A quick shot is all you get. And certainly yeah. they're wearing a little more clothes than they used to because the NFL has determined that's kind of offensive to women. Now, I wouldn't mind if they put some hot guys out there and- <laughs> but they don't do that so the nfl knows they've got to make it look like they care about women now do they really they finally have a couple women officials which is great it's not brain surgery they could have done that 20 years ago but do you know that in the pro football hall of fame they now have a woman in football section now i didn't know that now i'm going to tell you what's actually in that section what is it there's a woman named shannon easton who, who, when the NFL officials went on strike, she was called up and she was just a, she's a college official and I know her very well. Uh, we've worked together and she, um, she was called up. First woman ever to call an NFL game. Of course, it was a strike game. They took her hat and her pink whistle and put it in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. But when that strike was over, did they give Shannon a job? They did not. Mm. The, the Arizona Cardinals. Um, they hired a woman to be a coach. The first one, I think it was 2015. I can't think of her name. Um, But they put her jerseys and stuff, or her her equipment in the Hall of Fame as the first woman to coach an NFL game. She was not hired. She was an intern. As far as I know, an unpaid intern. What? Don't quote me on that. when the regular season came around, the Cardinals did not hire her. She was only in the preseason. I got one more. There was an NFL game where two women, who I can't think of their names right now, uh, were asked to do play-by-play in color. Great. Mm-hmm. That's what I've been waiting for. And they did. However, if you turned on that game on Monday night, it was Troy Aikman and Joe, and Joe Buck. You had to go to some really off 
site kind of TV station to find the women. They weren't even at the stadium. But in the in the Pro Football Hall of Fame are their headphones that they used to call that game. Now, think about all those things in there. Are any are women really now? Yeah, there's some coaches. I mean, low coaches, but there really aren't that many. And I think I think they would never put men in the Hall of Fame for those reasons. No, you're right. So, so they're desperately trying. I, I think. I, I also, what position do women broadcasters hold in the sports world primarily? They're just what, anchors. No, well, not really. When they are anchors, they're not. Well, they're, side, they're sideline reporters. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Sideline reporting, the, the dumbest sports job ever created. Do you want to stick a microphone in the face of a, of a coach whose team is down 35 nothing at halftime? It's a ridiculous position. They, they invented it so they could have a place to put women that wasn't important. And let's be honest. What do they talk about most of the time? Well, Bob, I think he blew out his ACL. Let's put nurses on the sideline. That would make much more sense. The women are only almost never talk about what's going on in the field or football strategy or, you know, why the defense is getting crushed. They talk about he hurt himself and maybe he'll be back. Right. They talk about they talk about things like I, I just finished watching the NBA finals with Miami Heat and they had uh, I think her name was Andrews or something like that. But anyhow, Aaron Andrews, yes. Aaron Andrews. But what I realized, the questions that she was asking is is what we've already seen for the first quarter, or the second quarter, or the third quarter. So us as a viewer, we already know what the coach is going to say. Right. <laughs> it's a ridiculous job. But if they don't have that job. Then where do this? Where do the networks put the women? They're not putting them in the booth, right? Okay, and that right. that will impress me when that happens. When women end up in the booth, I will be impressed. And wow. and so they're they're desperately trying to make it look like they care and things are getting better, but I don't think they are. Fair point. Fair point. Uh, before we transition here to um, to writing in your book, I wanted to ask you. You obviously you've. You've, you've done this. So if you could share with me, I'm a big sports fan. Who are some people that that are athletes or just are reporters and things like that, that we've seen that you've either met, engaged with, and what were some like key stories or some key lessons or some people that left an impact on you? For example, Magic Johnson, Larry Bird, Michael Jordan, mm -hmm. uh, Ken Griffey Jr., um, Randy Johnson, you name it. So of all these people, what what are some stories that you could share or anybody that left an impact on you? Um, there are quite a few. And you mentioned magic. And I will say when I was first here in Phoenix, of course, I was the only woman. They didn't have even women photographers. I was it. And and I will say that it's not easy for anybody having to go to work in a locker room. Um, a locker room is stinky and smelly and disgusting. And it's not a fun place to be. But when we're all on deadline, you have to go in. And I didn't want to, and it was a big deal to everybody when I did, but I had to do it. So one night the Suns were playing the Lakers and I don't know what Magic was doing in the Suns locker room, but I think that's where he was. And all the reporters are standing outside because waiting to be let into the locker room. And it's uncomfortable for everybody. You know, the guys want to admit that, but nobody wants to be in there really. It's just, it's hectic and crazy. And, and so anyway, we hear this booming music coming from inside the locker room and the door bursts open and there's magic. And he looks around at all the reporters and he spies me and he goes, and he comes over and grabs me and starts dancing with me. Nice. <laughs> and for all the guys and my brain goes, I am horrified. And then I started to laugh and I turned around and all the guys were laughing, but they weren't laughing at me. 
that it was almost like magic broke the ice for everybody mm. by doing that. And then when they said, everybody come in, nobody paid any attention to me. It was like, he, he put attention on me, but somehow took it off at the same time. Mm-hmm. And I've always been grateful to him for that moment. Um, there's another uh, player who's now deceased, Manute Bowl. Oh, I like um, that guy. Let me tell you, that man saved my butt one night. Wow. Um, I All the media people travel with the team. We were, we were covering the NBA playoffs, and the Suns were playing the Golden State Warriors. And I was up there, and all the media people hang out. We all go to dinner. We all drink together. you know. And the night before, we all had a few drinks. And as I was leaving, I said, oh, what time's the press conference tomorrow morning? And one of the guys from another station went 10 o'clock. I went, okay, fine. My cameraman and I get there at 9.30. There's no one there except that guy. And he's sitting by the court with his hands behind his head and his legs stretched out. And he goes, oh, Annie, are we a little late for the press conference? <laughs> and my cameraman went after him. I thought he was going to kill him. I'm like, no. And so he laughed and he laughed. And we're standing there. And I'm supposed to do a piece on Minute Bowl for the 5 o'clock news. And I'm I'm like, how am I going to do this? And And luckily, the media person for the Golden State came out. And it was a woman, which was rare. And I explained my problem. She goes, look, I can't help you. I said, their practice is over. The rest of the day is there till game time. I cannot make him come out. She goes, but I'll tell him you're here. I waited maybe 20 minutes and here he came. All seven foot seven of him. He was the kindest man, one of the kindest people I've ever interviewed. He answered all my questions. He never said, you know, I should be grateful to him, anything like that. And he, 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 I survived. I mean, I got a piece in by the five o'clock news and and it is those kinds of things. Uh, Charles Barkley. That's my guy. Oh, great, great guy. I didn't always agree with what he said, but I admired the fact that he, he never spoke in cliches. He's a very smart man. He plays it up that he's not, but he is. And and some men back then didn't want to be interviewed me and, and, or kind of were not very kind to me. He was always very nice. And so it was the people that were nice to me. I try to remember, not the ones that you know refused to talk to me or said things about me that were cruel, that kind of thing. So I, I prefer to remember the good ones, and those are the few that stand out. Nice, nice, nice. So, Anne, after you finished a career on um, TV, you transitioned. Can you talk a little bit about your transition into like writing, into being a teacher? And yeah, that- being official and yeah. This was, this was a time in my life when I was doing a great deal of feeling sorry for me. Um, I was, I came back to Phoenix for two years. I did, I was the studio host for the Phoenix Suns, which was great fun, but it was a part-time gig. You know, it was, I would only work their home games, excuse me. And, um, so I, I was trying to get a job and my husband, quite honestly, was angry because I, three quarters of our income, you came from me. Mm-hmm. And so suddenly I didn't have any money anymore and I could not get anyone to hire me to do anything. I mean, I'd worked in a bar. I was a bartender. I'm a damn good bartender. I went into two sports bars and I said, look, I can entertain your patrons even when they're sober and they wouldn't hire me because why I was pushing 40. And as most people in broadcast media understand when women are pushing 40, it's over. Mm-hmm. Um, it, the sports broadcasting uh, target audience is 18 to 34 year old males. And I had, I was no longer pretty enough to be in front of a camera. And suddenly after working for five TV stations, I couldn't get a job anywhere in the country. So yeah, so I was wandering around feeling sorry for myself. 
I applied for all kinds of jobs. Nobody would hire me because to look at a resume that said I was a sportscaster was a joke. They, most people thought, you know, I was nothing. The only skills I had were sports officiating. So I, ha I found myself um, on ESPN doing SportsCenter, and now I'm doing Pop Warner football again and, and Babe Ruth baseball and Little League. And, and I didn't want to run into anybody I knew because I was embarrassed. I didn't want, they, say, they said, what are you doing now? I'm calling Little League games, right? I was horrified and I was beaten down by it. Um, and it, the strangest thing occurred. I was sent out to work a ball game with a partner I never knew. You know, you never knew who you were going to be working with. Right. And it was like 14 year old baseball. And this, this man came limping up to me in a very profound limp, white beard, handsome man. And he, he goes, hi, uh, you know, I'm Don Clarkson. And I shook his hand. And for the next five years, we were baseball partners. Now, Don was a Vietnam veteran who had uh, been severely wounded in the war, had, you know, medals that he threw away. I mean, he, he was a hero, and but he would never say that. And um, he had post-traumatic stress, severe post-traumatic stress. And I don't know if you see when you go to like amateur baseball games, but the umpires, we, we arrive, we take chairs out of our trunks and we dress in the parking lot. Don and I spent a great deal of time together those five years. We worked like four or five nights a week together. He had eight children. They wouldn't let him talk about the war. And so he talked about it to me. Mm. And I listened to those stories of his life and I realized what a jerk I was. I realized how ridiculous my complaints were. Oh, poor me, they won't put me on TV. And he changed my life. Wow. And, and he's now deceased, sadly. He died when he was 60 of complications of Agent Orange. But my first book I wrote for him and it's a and he is his stories are involved in the protagonist. That's a light in the desert. Um, the other thing was is that at that time, both he and other people told me I should be a teacher. I said, "Why?" I'm just ridiculous. I said, "You've I, they said you've worked with kids for years as an official." So at 42, I went back to college to get it my teaching certificate. I was hired in it, the most inner city school in the state of Arizona where every kind of inner city problem occurs, drugs and alcohol and abuse and gangs and teen pregnancy and foster care. That was my school. And I further learned what a jerk I was, that I my life was golden compared to all these children that I knew. And uh, I taught and struggled through that because it was a very difficult situation. I mean, we had active shooter on campus. We had violence everywhere, but you muddle through. And a funny thing happened. First, I started writing books, which I did in the summer, um, and none of them have anything to do with sports, ironically. They have to do with societal issues, um, child abuse, cults, uh, domestic violence, um, uh, archaeology, things that are different. But anyway, um, a very odd thing happened to me after Don died. Um, I, at the end of the school year, because my kids were from such difficult family situations, I would put my phone number on the board. Uh, we were told not to do that, but I worried about the kids during the summer. Mm -hmm. And one year, one summer, this kid called me and he was like 14 and he'd been in, I, I became a reading specialist, which is ironic because I'm dyslexic, but he was in my reading class 
And uh, he just wanted to talk to me. And I said, Brandon, is there a problem can, that I can help you with? He goes, no, no, no problem. I said, well, you're going to be in my class next year because I was the journalism teacher and I could have kids year in and year out. So I put him in my journalism class. And um, he said, yes, I'll be there. Well, school started. He wasn't there. Mm -hmm. Two weeks went by and his number was disconnected. And I, I was like, I can't find him. I don't know where he is. So finally he called me and he'd been placed in foster care. His father was a pedophile who raped all his children. And yeah. And so he was in foster care and he said, I'm hungry. I said, what do you mean you're hungry? He said, well, they lock up all the food in the, in the group home in the morning and the school doesn't have my paperwork. So they won't feed me lunch. Well, I was furious. I'm stomping up and down the hall in my school, like an angry bear. And another teacher stopped me. And she said, if this bothers you so much, why don't you say he can live with you? And I went, don't be ridiculous. I'm 55. I was never able to have children. And that bothered me for quite a, quite a long time. But I was over it by 55. And I said, I, I'm not a mom. She said, then quit complaining. I walked into my office. I called the foster care people. I said, I have fingerprint clearance as a teacher. I've had background checks as a teacher. Can you give this boy to me? And they said, if he wants to live with you, he can. I called him. I said, Brandon, do you want to come live with me? He said, yes. I'm not going to tell you it was easy. Two weeks later, I had a, a newly turned 15-year-old boy dropped on my doorstep. Mm -hmm. um, I went on to have three sons and a daughter. Um, there, two were my legal foster children, and they still call me mom, and I'm now a grandma because of it. Wow. <laughs> I, am, I have a, a grandson. And the other two are not my legal children, and they do have biological mothers, so I have to tread lightly there. But um, I think of them as my children, and uh, so there have been four of them. And the funny thing was, is, is if I had never lost my job in television, I never would have become a teacher and I never would have been a mom. Damn, man, you about to bring tears to my eyes. <laughs> now, it's funny because, you know, mostly foster kids go away, but you know, I, my one is back living in the house right now, but he's autistic. Nobody gave that kid a chance at anything. And he graduated from Arizona State University last year and he works for the VA. Wow. So, um, <laughs> yes, I'm very proud of all of them. They're all very different. And my relationships with them are all different. But, uh, yeah, I have a 28, 27, 26, and 25-year-old. So, and, you know, I'm still mom. I hope to always be a mom. I, okay, so now you just wild me. Because, <laughs> <laughs> because and, like, you, you told me this spectacular story about your sports career, but man, it seemed like it took you on another mission of like purpose. It's funny. You know, we make plans in life. We think we have a straight line. It's not a straight line, but I, I always told my students this. I would, I would say, who would like to be happy 24 hours a day their entire life? And of course, everybody's hand goes up. I said, but if you're happy 24 hours a day forever, how do you know you're happy? If you haven't had the low parts, how can you appreciate these parts? And I tried to make them understand that, that nothing's ever going to go perfectly straight. And if you're having problems now, you can work your way out of them. Um, not all of them did. And it, it kind of breaks my heart to think of some of the kids who passed through my classroom. But I tried. I tried. And uh, that, that I, that's why it's so hard for teachers when we take such abuse in the press. I, I challenge, you know, of all the jobs I've done, teaching 
is the hardest. I can make me do anything, but you try to make a classroom of teenagers do stuff. It's hard. Um, and I, I'm saying officiating, sports casting, nothing compared to being a teacher. Nothing. Do you consider yourself someone of uh, inspiration to the point of uh, being a mentor to these kids? Um, I, I, I mentor kids today still. I'm in fact, some of my former students come by periodically and we do that. But I don't know that I mentor them as I just try to gently guide them. I used to be like when I first became a teacher, I was really kind of hardcore. I grew up, I was in newsrooms, you know, you don't miss the deadline. You get it done no matter what. And, and I had to change a little bit. I'll never forget the day this kid was late to my class every morning. And I, you know, to me, I'd say, look, when I was in TV, if I wasn't on the set, when the light went on, I'm out of a job. You know, I was pretty hardcore. And I took the kid outside and I said, look, I don't understand. You're late every day. And he's looking at his feet and he goes, I'm really sorry, Miss Montgomery, but um, I, I didn't know where I was going to sleep last night. I went, excuse me. And he said, well, I, I'm homeless. And so I, I slept at my uncle's last night and, and, so, and he lives far away from school. And it was hard for me to get here. I'm like, okay, mm. never, never bothered that. He could walk in whenever he had to walk in. But it was those kinds of things. I grew up in a middle-class community outside of New York City. I didn't deal with this kind of stuff. This no. was all so new to me that it made my former career seem kind of not very important. Mm. And so I learned and I became, one teacher came up to me when, oh, my, when my first year teaching, I had a, a, a video class and the kids got mad at me because I was being real hard with them. And they said, we don't need you. And every kid in my class got up and left. All of them left. I stood in front of an empty classroom and I cried. I don't cry a lot. I cried in front of that empty classroom. Another teacher came up to me a little later and she goes, have you ever considered being nicer? I'm like nice there's no nice on a football field there's no nice in a newsroom <laughs> but she was right i had to become nicer and i work on that every day so when i deal with former students or even my own kids now i think about how can i present this more nicely it's not easy for me to be nice i have to work at that all right so annie montgomery sportscaster writer, teacher, mom, mom thank <laughs> and, and uh, I want to talk about this book where you're an author, Wolfcatcher. Yes, that was one of my favorite books to write. And it was a very difficult one because I got in a lot of trouble. Um, Wolfcatcher is an is um, historical fiction based on a real man who was found buried outside of Flagstaff, Arizona. Not at, He was buried 900 years ago. And he was discovered with 600 magnificent funerary objects, uh, jewelry, turquoise jewelry and point, uh, arrow points and pottery and weapons. And he was found with these fascinating swords that were made of wood. And they had human hands and animal hoofs carved in the bottom on them. And when the Hopi were there with the archeologists digging them up in 1939, they stepped back and went, oh no, the man's a magician. What they were saying is he was a sword swallower that he could swallow these and only the hand would come out. So he was a magic man. Well, I, I wrote for a magazine called Arizona Highways and they said, go find out who this man was. Uh -huh. His remains were in the Museum of Northern Arizona. So I scheduled a thing with an archeologist I'd worked with before in his story uh, who ran the museum. I'm gonna go up there, do some interviews. 
I get up there, the man's not there. He won't talk to me. Um, I also got a letter from the Hopi tribe saying, you can't do a story on the magician because he's an ancestor and you know it's not allowed. Well, the bottom line is the original paperwork said the man looked sort of Caucasian. Now you explain to me how that's possible 900 years ago. Well, it's because the story about Columbus is ridiculous. Right. People have been migrating around the world for thousands and thousands of years. Right. Look into the history, that's the case. So while I got in trouble writing the, the article, I then turned it into this book, Wolfcatcher, which goes from the reporter's quest to find out who the magician might have been to 1100 when he lived. And during that time, a volcano erupted here in Arizona, the sunset mm -hmm. crater volcano. And it changed the world up there. It changed where people could live. It changed uh, migratory patterns, all kinds of things. So I, I, in another life, would be an archaeologist. I love history. And I love ancient history. So the book is about who that man might have been, as well as uh, the modern day reporter and, a, and a, a woman who deals with the magician back then. And he is named Wolfcatcher for a reason. <laughs> amazing, amazing, amazing. Let me get this off the screen. So, and you've uh, had a very great career and you, you blow my mind. So I thought we was going to talk a lot about sports today. So, well, so, we can do that too. <laughs> you know what I mean? And you've uh, really touched my heart with um, all of the phenomenal work that you've been doing. And I could see that you have a true heart of gold in regards to like truly, truly, truly caring about people. And I just want to commend you for that, for doing that. I wanted to ask you, as you've Travel through life and had all of these experiences. What are some lessons? What are some advice that you could share with our our listeners? Because you're a woman that started in in an industry where odds were stacked against you, but you still prevail against all prevail against all odds. Then you transition, and you kind of kind of was beating up, beating up yourself, and then reality hits you when someone told you a story about what their life was like, and then you kind of like. I guess the life ain't that bad. Yes. And, exactly. then, and then all of a sudden you came across these kids and it it tore you down into another part and like dug deep inside of you where you saw like there's another level to life and more and much more meaning and much more purpose to life. For someone that's listening to this podcast, what are some some advice and some lessons that you could give them based off some of your life experiences that I probably not even touched on with some of my questions that I asked you, but what are some things that you could share? I think, I think when someone tells you no, um, look at it as a gift. Um, because when someone tells you no, at least in my case, and I think in a lot of people's cases, it makes you want to prove them wrong. And uh, for example, my brother bet me $20. I'd flunk out of college my first semester because I was too stupid to be in college. And I would have rather been hit by a truck and lose that bet and don't think harshly of me, but I have more degrees than he does. And I like that. <laughs> <laughs> so take no as a gift and just move forward. The other thing is that I think really helps is to do your best to have a sense of humor, no matter what. Okay. If I got upset every time someone did something cruel to me or offended me or tried to make me look bad, um, I would have never survived. I have, I always try to look on the positive side of things when something negative has happened to me. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's built in or you can learn it, but um, to me, to me, those are the important things. No, no is a gift. 
and look at it that way. Yeah, I think your journey has been one of uh, resilience. You know, as I think about my son, I could, as I as I some things I talk to him about, and when I think about my veteran career or some things I've done in my professional career and opportunities for me to give up and quit. And I hear your story and nothing but perseverance, nothing but perseverance. Or maybe I'm again, maybe I'm just stubborn. I don't know. I, I, I think you can develop perseverance if you try, but I, I worry about young people a lot today because they seem to give up very quickly when something isn't perfect. I mean, I'm sure you've heard about, you know, all the kids you do take a job for three months and you're not happy. So you quit. Right. I mean, I can't imagine doing that. I, I just think you have to try to tough things out and find out where you fit. You don't always fit where you are. Do the best you can learn from what you're doing and move on. Everything we do teaches us something. Try to find what that something is. Um, I, I think that's the best advice I've got. <laughs> No, I, I agree with you. I think uh, every single piece of life is a, is a lesson that we have to learn from. And I think it would be a shame if you miss the lesson or the key points of whatever experience that you're actually going through. I, that's what I think is one of the biggest things around adversity. Yeah. And life isn't supposed to be perfect every day. You know, when my husband looked at me one day and said, he goes, I'm not happy every day. I said, I'm not either. Who is? No one. <laughs> No one. <laughs> so, Anne, uh, before we get out of here, um, if anybody wanted to uh, work with you, uh, book you on a podcast, book you for a speaking engagement or anything like that, how can they get a hold of you to uh, work with you? Real easy. AnneMontgomeryWriter.com. That's Anne with an E. AnneMontgomeryWriter.com. All of my information is there. All of my books are listed there. My blogs. Um how you can contact me. That's the best way to do it. Absolutely. Well, Anne, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on the Overcoming Adversity podcast. This conversation was extremely, extremely powerful and empowering for myself. I know that it will be for our listeners too as well. So I just want to tell you, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. I enjoyed it, Michael. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. Until next time, guys, uh, we'll drop another podcast weekly. Peace. We're out of here. We love you. Can't complain at all Couple dollars in my pocket No income and go Been working on my body Getting healthier Thank God for clarity